Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in this series that we've entitled, Who Am I? Studying the book of Ephesians. This is what we do at Village Bible Church. We pick up a book of the Bible. We start in verse 1. And we work through it until we get to the end, gleaning all the truths we can that God wants us through the work of his Holy Spirit to understand and know about him so that we may know about ourselves and that we might live differently in light of the truths that we have learned. And today we pick up this book, this book of Ephesians. This book was written as it is articulated. In fact, let's just open up the book right away. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right away, we are told that the Apostle Paul is this writer. The Apostle Paul who was known before his conversion to Jesus as Saul of Tarsus. He would come to know Jesus as his Savior as he was en route to go and persecute the church and Christians. And Jesus arrests him, if you will, and, and wins him over with the gospel, and, and he becomes a servant and an apostle who is a herald, in fact, who writes more of the New Testament than anybody else. Uh, he would be the great spokesman for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, he would write this book about 30 years after the resurrection of Christ from the dead, around 60 AD, and he would write this um, to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is an ancient city. Uh, you can still visit there. The ruins are still there. Uh, it is located in what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, you won't find Ephesus on a map. You would find the name of Ephesus, which has been renamed Selkuk. And Selkuk, Turkey, is a place of great beauty. It's a place that resides about 30,000 people. And uh, you will see uh, the ancient ruins of Ephesus as you see the modern uh, version of Selkuk in the background. Uh, this city is known and was known for its love of politics, its love of sporting events, entertainment, and, uh, and pleasure. Uh, some of the things that were known of this city was the stadium that uh, this city had, holding as many as 30,000 people at a time for sporting events and events of theater and, and entertainment. It also was the, the place, its kind of claim to fame was the Temple of Artemis or Diana, depending on if you followed Roman theology or Greek mythology, and people would pilgrim to this temple, and this was a place known for its fertility. It was uh, a place where sexuality was explored. It was where sexuality was elevated. And so people would make these pilgrimages and, and, and men and women, prostitutes were there to address any one of your desires. It was a place where debauchery and degradation was known to be uh, in high demand. It was also a city of great economic commerce and wealth. In fact, one of the first ancient malls, if you will, a one-stop shop uh, for all of your shopping was there in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul writes 
to this group of Christians who he had led to the Lord during his uh, three-year stint in Ephesus where he preached and proclaimed the gospel. He would start a church and he would put his uh, spiritual uh, disciple Timothy into that church to serve as a pastor. He would write three letters uh, to the church in Ephesus. This one, uh, the letter to the Ephesians. Number two would be 1 Timothy. And the third one would be 2 Timothy that would be written at the end of his life to their pastor. Now this book uh, that is uh, so filled with all of these awesome truths is, is written to a group of individuals who are being more and more pushed to the margins by a growing secular and perverse culture around it. Sound familiar? It's written to a group of people who are called to be holy in a world of unholiness to be chased in a world of debauchery, uh, to live as Christians in a world amongst the godless. And so Paul writes this, and what Paul wants to do is he wants to nail one truth down, and that is you and I need to know who we are. We need to know what we're all about. Because if we don't know who we are, and we don't know what we're all about, then culture will pervade our thinking, will pervade our lives, and as a result, we, like frogs in a kettle, will not know how far we've gone with the culture before it's too late. Now, what Paul is going to do is he's going to unveil what many scholars believe to be some of the most excellent of writing in all of the Bible. Uh, Scholars that have studied the Scriptures say this about this book of Ephesians. One man says, It is the divinest of all compositions that man has ever written. Another one says it's the crown jewel of St. Paul's writings. Another says it's the queen of the epistles. Another says it's the greatest and most relevant of Paul's works. Still another says Ephesians is the greatest piece of writing in all of human history. Another one says it's the most influential document ever written. This is what we have in our hands. This is what men and women say about the text that we are going to study. And why it is said of this is because of the great truths that come from it. We're going to look under this heading, who am I? I believe with all of my heart that that is the greatest question addressing this generation of humanity. Who am I? We live in a world that is suffering from a massive identity crisis. We are trying to know who we are, and therefore, once we know who we are, how we are to live, how we are to act, what we are to do with this thing called life. But the problem is, is we don't know who we are. And so we try to label ourselves with all manner of things, hoping that in labeling ourselves, we will identify who we are and then bring purpose and meaning to our lives. Now, we label ourselves in a couple different ways. Write these down. It might be helpful for you. Maybe you find yourself identifying in these ways. Number one, we start with our status. And so we start looking at what's in our lives, our homes, our cars, uh, our jobs, uh, where we're at in the social economic world, and, and we start to identify ourselves based on that. And then others might find themselves identifying people or themselves by the color of their skin. I'm black, I'm white, I'm brown, I'm something in between. And and we begin to identify and wrongly identify ourselves in those types of terminologies. Those become our identifying marks. 
Now what has become part and parcel to uh, our lives in this culture is that we identify ourselves through our sexuality. And so we begin to have feelings, we have attractions, we have temptations and desires, and we assume wrongly that that's what identifies us. And so we start identifying ourselves by the way we feel or how we express ourselves sexually, and our world has fallen headlong into this sort of thinking. Another way that we do it is through our struggles. We hear from a doctor, we hear from a therapist so that we have this condition, we have this ailment, we have this issue and and we label ourselves and we lead with I'm this, I'm that type of person and we identify with the struggles that we have. Still others, others of us identify ourselves through the stuff we possess. And so when we buy that new car, we feel different about ourselves. When we buy that outfit, when we have that new piece of technology, we feel altogether different about ourselves than we did before we had that thing. You see, there's a myriad of ways that we can identify ourselves in this world, but what Paul wants us to know is that there are two identities in this world. All of their identities are for naught. In some ways, many of them are unhelpful. Many of them are are sinful, but there are two identities that the Bible articulates. You are one of these two identities. The first identity is you identify in yourself. The Bible says you identify in Adam. Uh, The reason why the Bible uses Adam as that uh, person is because Adam represents all those who rebel against God, who live in rebellion against God. And so if you are living life for self, if you are living life apart from God, if you are living with God absent from your life, you are living your life as Adam did, you are living in Adam or in yourself. The Bible says that those who live in Adam, those who live in self, they are the ones who make wide and broad the way that leads to destruction. You're in rebellion. You are living outside of God's will and plan for your life. Paul talks about these individuals when he says, notice in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and you in Adam were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. When we were in Adam, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." So this morning, if you are living life apart from God, this is how God defines you. He says, you are under my wrath. You are living in trespasses and sin. You are following the course of this world. Paul says to these Ephesian believers, he says to them and he speaks to us today and he says the following, you are either gonna follow the course of this world, identifying yourself as the world identifies themselves or you are going to find an alternative and the only alternative to living in yourself or living in Adam is this, my friends, living in Christ. 25 times he is gonna use some variation of in Christ or in him. That phrase is used three times in the New Testament. We are called Christians. And we identify as Christians three times. That's all the New Testament uses that phrase. 75 times it says we are to identify ourselves as in 
Christ. One-third of those uses are found in the book of Ephesians. What Paul wants us to know is that it is not our status, it is not our skin color, it is not our sexuality, it is not our struggles or the stuff we possess that identify or bring meaning and purpose to our lives. It is our relationship to Christ and him alone that sets the trajectory of our lives. And so, Paul says, I want you to know who you are are in Christ because if you don't know who you are in Christ then you will fall for every lie in the world and the world's sending out tons of lies and trying to get us to believe those lies and it is the job of the church it is the job of your pastors and your elders to remind you over and over again who you are and who we are in Christ so that we will not fall prey to the ploys and lies of the devil in the world and so Paul begins and he starts out to this church that's struggling in the culture around it to be holy and blameless, and he says, I want you to know that you are three things because of Christ. He says, in Christ, number one, you are beloved. You are beloved. Let's start with Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now let's start here. The first truth that God wants us to know is that we are loved by God. And this love isn't something that started yesterday or the day before. Notice what Paul says, it began before the foundations of the world. That is before this world was created. That is before Adam and Eve stepped foot in the garden. Before Abraham would be called to uh, Cana. Uh, uh, it would be before Moses would be given the Ten Commandments. Before David would take his seat on the throne of Israel. It would happen before uh, Bethlehem would be put on the map because of Christ being born there. Before all of that happened, God had you and I on his mind. And he put his affection, he put his love on us. Now I want you to notice that what Paul does is he is bubbling over from verse 3 to verse 14. It is one long sentence in the Greek language without any pu uh, punctuation. He is bubbling over in praise, thanking God for whom God has made him through Christ. When was the last time, church, you bubbled over because of what God has made you through Christ? And just rehearsed in your mind, maybe through a Bible study, maybe through a song, I am all of these things. And then to simply say, as we sang earlier today, what he has done, oh, what he has done to bubble over and to, with gratitude to be blown away by the love of God which we have found in Christ Jesus is a marvelous thing. We will never be more alive. 
We will never be more Christ-honoring and God-glorifying than when we rehearse over and over again the love of God which he gave us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he says the first thing that we need to know about this love is that this love involved a choice. He, he chose us. He chose us. Later in the text, it uses a theological word that we bristle at. He predestined us. Now, for, for those who have been around the church, you know these are uh, some difficult waters to traverse. Uh, maybe if you're new, you're sitting there going, okay, that sounds good. God loved me and he chose me. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with that. But for some of us that have been around it, we know these are, these are debatable things. These are things we struggle with, but we shouldn't. Paul doesn't give any kind of uh, sense that he struggles with these things. God shows us, and he's overflowing with praise to the praise of his glorious grace, he says. Now, here's why Paul does, because Paul knows what we should know, that God is a choosing God. He's a choosing God. All throughout the scriptures, we revel in the fact that God chooses people. Now, here's the crazy thing. We usually uh, love God choosing others, but we struggle when it says that God chooses us. Let me, let me remind you. It was God who chose Noah, who redeemed Noah, who gave Noah the job of building the ark, and we're like, praise be to God. It was God who chose Abraham to call him out of land of, of the Chaldeans, a godless culture, and to take him to a promised land that he would bless Abraham with, and we praise God for that. We praise God that God would protect Moses amidst the killing of babies in Egypt, and God would protect and sovereignly intervene in such a way that Moses would rise up uh, to be the prime minister if you will, uh, in all of Egypt and then set his people free. We are blown away by God's sovereign uh, choices in, in the choosing of David. God's sovereign choice in the choosing of the nation of Israel. God's sovereign choice of choosing the Levites to be the priest over the people of God. We spend a whole month relishing and reveling in the fact that God would choose those individuals who would serve as the characters of the first Christmas. And we sit there and we're blown away by the story of John the Baptist who's in his mother Elizabeth's womb at the very mention of Jesus by Mary. He, before he's even and born flips and jumps for joy in his mother's womb because the Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit beforehand and we revel at that but then we say but not me I have free will I have free choice and we'll get to that in a moment but let's just sit in this and recognize what Paul is saying Paul is saying before the foundations of the world you Christ follower were loved by the almighty eternal God and if that doesn't just shower over you a sense of gratitude and magnificence, then your theology is getting in the way of you seeing God. God did this. And you say, well, how, how could he do it? Well, let me give you an illustration that does not hold water if you push it too far, so don't do that. But I remember when Amanda announced to me that I was gonna be a father three times. I remember loving those children. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't know if they were boys or girls. We didn't find out with any of them. We, we left it to the Lord until they came out. And I loved them. And I changed my life for them. 
And I positioned myself as their father and made sure that they were ready, that they had a house to be prepared for. I made sure of all of those stuff. I never met them. I didn't know what kind of kids they were going to be. I didn't know if they were going to be trouble. I didn't know anything about them. But what I knew is I loved them. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is what God did before the foundations of the world. He made a decision to put his affection on you. Now, now why is this so important? Because the world tells us we're unloved. The world tells us that we are a, a, a blip of chance in a cosmic chaos. We are told we're insignificant. We are told that we lack value. And I want you to know today, no matter what someone has told you or what the world is telling you, you have value, you have worth, because before the foundations of the world, you were loved by God. Wayne Grudem reminds us of what he's saying here, uh, Paul, when he says this. He says that election is God's act before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any, for, un, any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that. We need to know that. Now, God made a decision f about you before you were born. We have to hold that. We have to grab hold of that and never let that go. Now, I know some of you are saying, but Tim, the Bible says you gotta believe that whosoever believes will be saved. And the answer is yes. For you to be saved, you have to believe. For you to be saved, you have to make a decision. For you to be saved, you have to trust. You have to give your life to Jesus. Yes, the Bible is clear on that. But never forget, for that to happen, God's sovereign choice must happen first. It is God who says, I began the work in you, and I am the God who will see it to completion. And so we hold in tension these two truths. God chose, and we asked for him to come into our lives. We bowed the knee. Now what many of us will do, and being incoherent in our theology, is we'll grab hold of one or the other of those pillars. We'll say, nope, I have free will, I made the decision, God didn't do it for me. I'm not a robot, I'm not his, I do it all on my own. And the answer is, you're wrong. Because the Bible says right here in the text that God chose us. But then others will say, well, God did it all, and I didn't do anything at all. To do that, you are wrong. And so what Paul is doing is he's causing tension to cause us to stretch and recognize this truth, that my salvation is beyond my understanding. And it should lead me to what Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Maybe this morning, you have been told how unlovely you are. Maybe you've been told what a mistake you are. Maybe you've been told that you are a waste of space. I want you to know if you are in Christ, you are none of those things. You are beloved by the God of the universe. And never forget that. And that truth is as important for us adults as it is the young people. Brothers and sisters, especially the young among us, you are gonna be told by someone that you wanna fall in love with that the only way that you have merit and value is why them labeling you with that merit and value. 
But you don't need anybody to say anything more than what God says about you right now. You are beloved by the God of the universe. You don't need the boyfriend or girlfriend to say that. You don't need your friends to say that. You don't need culture to say that. You have God here in scripture saying to you, I love you and I have a purpose and plan for you because you are special and you are the apple of my eye. Let us never forget that because as soon as we forget that, we fall for every one of the devil's lies and ploys. Number two, number two, we are beloved. Number two, we are blessed. We are blessed. Paul says we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That blessing begins in his choosing and it moves in progression. We are adopted as sons and daughters, he says, which we'll talk about in later uh, verses. He says that this idea of being blessed in verse three is found in the past tense. That means before eternity began, God made a decision that you were gonna be his child and that God was going to bless you as his child. Now notice how this blessing is lived out. Notice in verse five, he lavishes his blessings upon you. He lavishes them. The emotion or the commitment behind that lavishing is love. In love he predestined you. And so for the believer, God made a decision, I am going to bless my children every day of their lives. What he's saying is, is I'm going to bless you with everything you need from point A in your spiritual journey to point Z. Wherever you've begun, you will get to the finish line and you will do so victoriously because I will give you everything you need in Christ. Listen to me, church. For the believers in this place, every day in Christ is like Christmas morning. You just open a new gifts from God. New blessings, new mercies are coming from God. New opportunities for you to see the goodness of God running after you and me. Now notice where these blessings come. They come from the heavenly places. There's purity to these blessings. There's a supernaturalness to these blessings. These blessings aren't the blessings we would think we would get in this world. They're not cars, they're not houses, they're not stuff. That's not how heaven operates. Heaven operates under a different scope and sequence of things. These blessings come from heaven down to earth. Now notice this blessing that's lavished upon us as we are overwhelmed by these blessings are fourfold, the scriptures tell us. Write these down. The first blessing we have is in our standing before the Lord. Our standing before the Lord. Because of our adoption as sons, we are once and forever inaugurated and welcomed into the family of God. Nothing can take that away. For some of you this morning, whether in this room or online, you have sinned grievous sins in these last days. And you have been blown away by your grief and your remorse and your guilt. And the devil's saying, that's it, you blew it. People in Christ, they don't live that way, they don't think that way, they don't talk that way, they don't act that way, and you are devastated by a demonic guilt that has come over you. And what God wants you to know in Christ is that your standing hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Fellowship has been broken, yes, but you stand with the righteousness of Christ imputed on you by Christ himself. Nothing can separate that from us. Number two, 
Our standing is a blessing God gives us. Number two, we see that the next blessing is God supplying our needs. Philippians tells us, my God will supply all your needs through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have all that we need. You never have to go to your tackle box and wonder, do I have what I'm gonna need for today? Because in the beginning of time, God destined for you to have everything you need to accomplish the work that he has for you. So it's there, the resources to follow him, the resources to obey him, the resources to say no to sin are there at your disposal. He gives them to you. And if you don't have them, then they are wants. Because God has promised he'll supply everything that we need. Number three, he gives us strength. Strength in times of trials and tribulation. So as Christians in Christ, we may ask the question, but what happens when this takes place? And what happens when that takes place? We can have confidence to know that we will have the needed strength to get through whatever God puts in our lives. Whatever he allows, whether the good, the bad, or ugly of life, he will give us what we need to accomplish what he wants us to do in those trials and tribulations. And finally, he gives us our standing, our supply, our strength, and security. Listen, the knowledge that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so when we bow the knee to Jesus and we affirm his election in our hearts and minds, we then start to open up blessing upon blessing upon blessing into our lives. And like I said, it's like Christmas morning. It never ends. Now, what can happen when we see that we're beloved and we're blessed is humanly speaking, we start to think that there's something about us. We start envisioning that we are on the recess playground and the teams are being broken up and the captains of the team are vying for you because you have some value, you have some, some ability that's gonna help them. And we begin to think, well, the reason why God picked me was because I'm worth something. Well, let's remember, I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. I, I am alienated from God. I'm, a, I'm, I'm being worked over by the devil, and, and I'm living according to my passions, chapter two, verses one through three says. I bring nothing to the table except for sin, my debauchery, my disobedience. And so what I need to recognize is, is that when God saves me, he saves me so that I don't have a license to do what I want, but so that I would live differently. Chuck Swindoll, when speaking about election, tells this story from history when he says, our response to election should be like Queen Victoria's reaction when she realized she would be queen one day. When she was young, Victoria was shielded from the fact that she would be the next ruling monarch of England, lest this knowledge spoil her. When her teacher finally did let her discover for herself that she would one day be queen of England, Victoria's response was simple, then I'll be good. And that's our response. I'm beloved by God. I'm blessed by God. Then therefore, I have a burden. And that's the third and final point. I'm burdened. Now, to be burdened when you live in Adam, when you live in self, is to be burdened with trying to find what is going to satisfy you. And the Bible says you will be weary and heavy laden in that pursuit. 
But when you are burdened to please and glorify the one who loves you and has blessed you and has saved you, that burden is easy. That burden is light. And so Paul writes this group of Christians and he says, I want you to be burdened with something. And notice a couple words and I'll close. Number one, he writes to the saints, verse one, who are in Ephesus, who are faithful. God has done his work. He has loved you. He has blessed you. Now the question is, are you living in light of that? Are you faithful? As you look to this last week, has your week been characterized by the love and blessing of God that he gave you before the foundations of the world? This faithfulness is seen in verse four where we are called to be holy and blameless. And so as we sit under this teaching of who I am in Christ, it should lead us to live differently. We can't just believe something about ourselves and not allow it to uh, dictate how we live and direct how we live. In fact, what Paul is gonna do, this, this book can be broken down into two segments. Who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us, chapters one through three, and chapters four through six, now how I am to live in light of what Christ has done. And it changes every aspect of me. We are called to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you and I have received in Christ. Is that true? And so we're gonna be challenged by this over and over again. You are this in Christ, you are that in Christ. Believe that, affirm that, hold true to that. Don't fall prey to the world's lies. Don't believe culture's definitions of who you are. This is who you are in Christ, and as a result of that, now live and think and act differently to the praise of his glorious grace, amen? So let us do that this week. Let us live in light of his glorious grace, in light of his sovereign love and goodness and blessing to us, and in doing so, we will see the blessings from the heavenly places overwhelm us to his glory and for his namesake.